Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Image Doctors Photography Podcast, where we talk about photography and digital and all kinds of fun things. I'm Jason O'Dell. And I'm Rick Walker. It's good to be back here, Rick. And uh, there's a definite autumn chill in the air today, I can tell. Yeah, after what seemed like a succession of weeks with hot weather, it's it's a little bit cooler. And I, I have to admit, I kind of like it. It's nice. We're into spooky season for sure here. Um, up in the high country of the semi high country. Um, so um, we're, we're going to take a, a little, we don't have a technical topic this week. Um, so bear with us. <laughs> right? Well, we, we like doing non-technical ones when we can. And um, you know, in this one, uh, this is a good thing, bad thing, but I think we're going to turn it into mostly a good thing. And that your grandmother passed away here very recently and you were out in L.A. for the service and stuff. And, you know, I can tell from talking to you that she was very important to you. But the way we're going to weave this in is turns out she had quite an influence on you photographically. And in the past, we've talked about famous photographers influencing us and who they were and stuff like that. But, you know, honestly, sometimes it's not the famous people. It's the people that are in our family or close friends that can actually have a pretty profound influence on us getting into photography. I, I know it was true for me in, in, in ways with other people. Um, but, you know, just add to the richness of it and create memories that are really nice and, you know, uh, a variety of things. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk a little bit about some fun things that you brought back as memories of her that um, if things work out, we'll, we'll try to, to actually use in a shoot here sometime soon. Um, but you want to talk a little bit, a little bit about your grandmother? Yeah. And, and thanks Rick. I mean, I, I was just thinking right now, as you were talking about this, every photograph is a memory. Mm -hmm. It is right. I mean, that's yeah. 90% of photography is memories, uh, whether they're personal or photojournalistic or whatever. Right. But it's a, it is a memory. So when you look at a photo of a place that you've been, um, or even a place that you haven't been, but it's a family photo from the past, it's bringing back those memories, not that you were there, but, but it's, it's important. And, um, I just wanted to say, you know, my grandmother passed away last week at the age of 96. And, and she, you know, and she's been, um, in, in tremendous influence, but not in the, but, but I didn't know some of the stories and, and some of the stuff with speaking with my mom and my uncle, um, when I was out in Los Angeles, um, you know, just brought back some stuff and it's, it's, it's an interesting story. And, um, my grandmother was always a creative spirit, very creative, very detail oriented. Um, and that's where I get a lot of that from, but the my grandmother was also one who just didn't want to get rid of things as we found there's a lot of things in the house but you know, and, and not in a bad way just in a there's a lot of stuff from a long time ago sitting around here probably um, memories for her right yeah absolutely in one way or another and um my mom might have a different take on it but i'll yeah. i'll leave it at that but um in the late 60s well in the mid 60s when my uncle was in high school he got into photography 
And one of the things that they did for him was they made it so that one of the bathrooms could be set up as a, as a dark room. There was a separate room with the bathtub and the shower and it just had a little tiny window. So it was easy to black out. Perfect. And, and it was just, and that was the thing. And for a long time, when I was a kid, I remember there was, you know, packages of fixer and things, you know, and mm -hmm. stuff hanging around in that bathroom closet, not in the, you know, not out in the open, but there was all these photographic chemicals. Well, as it turned out, and this is the interesting part of the story, is that my grandmother really wasn't the one into photography. It was my uncle. And then he graduated from high school. He went to college and moved away. And rather than just saying, you well, I don't really know what to do with all this enlarger stuff that's sitting around. Maybe we should just, you know, see if it could be gotten rid of. My grandmother took the completely opposite approach and said, well, we have this stuff. I'm going to learn photography now because gosh darn it, someone should use this, the, you know, and just by itself, just a very powerful little insight into her personality. Yeah. And so when she would go into to these me. things all, all in. And so, and so, you know, digging through stuff and she, she got an OM1 camera um, at the, I believe the, as the story goes at the recommendation of my dad who said, you know, the Nikons are really big. Um, why don't you take a look at these Olympus? They're a lot easier to, to, to handhold. Yeah. I mean, they're just mm -hmm. form factor was a lot smaller and they really are. Um, and uh, they have some clever design, you know, features that we can talk about later, but, um, and that was so growing up. I mean, my grandmother was always the one who was taking the photos. She was taking the photos. My mom got into it as well. I mean, we had a dark room in our house in, in Florida when I was a kid growing up. So some of that came from, mm -hmm. from there. Um, but the thing about my grandmother is that especially, you know, at the peak of film photography in the, in the early eighties, um, before autofocus, before all these things is that she wanted to try every creative thing as the not necessarily technology mm. so to speak but i mean she took classes and there's these prints that were up on her uh, cork board in her workroom you know from photos you know there's a photo of a cake now why is there a photo of a cake it's a black and white picture why because she took that photo with the lighting and she did it on the enlarger and she that was her photo of that cake you know like i don't have any attachment to a cake you know but other things mm -hmm. that she would do with like the real almost posterized kind of looks or inverted kinds of things that were <laughs> projects for for and things you could try to do in the dark room and i remember her thing is if there was a special effects filter that would come out she would go and always get these things That's and most funny. of the time it was just a uv filter or a polarizing filter but one time they came out with the star filter you know that oh, one Rick? you oh, know I, I never owned one i'm proud to say but <laughs> well i am familiar she, with them but she had the perfect use for it because we would go water skiing out in a reservoir in the desert and we'd be sitting there and, you know, she'd be in the boat and we'd be floating, you know, wearing your, your life jacket or right? you get in the water. And so you're right close there. And she's like, you know, Hey, Jason, look at me or my sisters or my mom or whatever. And of course the water is shimmering around you, the ripples. Mm. And then we get all these little stars on it. Right. Sure. And, and that stuff. And I remember another time Kodak had just come out with 1000 speed print film. Mm -hmm. So this was probably in the 1983, 84, somewhere when mm -hmm. it came out. So I was probably 12 or 13. And she says, mm -hmm. Jason, I saw on the television commercial that you're supposed to be able to take a picture with candlelight, <laughs> this film. 
because that was their shtick. There was you could shoot by candlelight. I think you remember the commercials that I'm referring mm-hmm. to. Some of our listeners may re- remember this, right? So she takes me into the hallway where it's kind of dark and closes everything up and lights a candle and she starts doing portraits by candlelight. I have no idea where those pictures ended up, but that was, you know, the kind of stuff that she would do. Um, so, you know, that was a tremendous creative influence. And, and although she didn't quite embrace digital quite as much because she was much older by that point when she was in her early seventies. And this is just, the, this is just one of those cool, cool stories. And I, I just, it, it was great. Um, I was in graduate school. This was like in the uh, late nineties. And I was, I was in graduate school. I was about uh, 70 miles away and out in Riverside, California. And I would come over occasionally for dinner and so I went there and she said, I have to show you this thing. She's all excited. She goes, I have to show you this stuff. This friend of mine who does creative things with or in some group, whatever, showed these and I'm blown away by them. And she proceeded to pull out a stack of watercolor paper. And on the watercolor paper were inkjet photographs, inkjet print, but they had all been tweaked in Photoshop to look like... Um, some kind of painting or watercolor or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like using what was in Photoshop at the time, which, you know, in the late nineties, this was like Photoshop five, maybe mm-hmm. six was probably around there. Anyway, early Photoshop. So it was whatever the onboard things there wasn't, you know, you weren't necessarily doing a lot of this stuff because digital photography hadn't taken off yet. This was prints that the guy had scanned. And yeah. when, when she said, um, how did he do it? He wouldn't tell her other than to say, I used a computer. And I looked at these pictures and I I said, um, I recognized some of the filters right away because I had dorked around with Photoshop, not knowing what I was doing, but I had a copy of Photoshop when I was in school for scanning things. And I recognized a lot of these filters were, and they're still there. The sponge filter is one and the, you know, the watercolor filter or the whatever. And they're just in there. And I looked and I said, you know, I think I pretty much know how to do this. Really? Yeah. Well, she came out, scanned a bunch of her photos from a trip that we had taken in um, and uh, to Europe. And uh, we did stuff and we played around with them. And then she brought a stack of watercolor paper and we printed them out on my inkjet printer. And they're still in her house. I mean, she, she loved that. And uh, she was into things like Polaroid emulsion transfer. I can't tell you how many photographs of framed emulsion transfers are sitting in her closet, but that's a different story. But, but if she got into that, it's an interesting thing. And she would take her older photos, get them done on a Polaroid and then do the emulsion transfer thing. Cause that's the kind of stuff. So it was always the creativity. And so when she got back from, from my place, this is probably around 98. She then just decided I need a computer and I need Photoshop (laughs) at the age of 72. And she took it up. And she did it. She went in there and her thing was making greeting cards from her photos, from things in her garden or wherever, and and lots of flowers. And she would manipulate them to look whatever and print it. So you would always get a birthday card with one of her photos printed on it. And that was that was her thing. So a tremendous amount of my creativity comes from her. And I'm going to miss her tremendously. Yeah, she sounds awesome, actually. She really sounds like someone I would have really liked. She's great. Um so in the process, you know, we're cleaning things out and going through things. Um, you know, when people say, is there anything in here that you need? 
it's not really a need thing. Is there anything in there that you want or have? And, and I was going through the closet and my aunt says, Jason, you need to go through this one because this is where all the camera stuff is. And you would know if there's any, anything worthwhile to save or, or mm-hmm. what. And that's where I dug up some stuff. And, and, and in there was her, her last film camera, which was an Olympus OM4. Mm-hmm. And I brought that back. Um, I think the meter is toast on it. I put batteries in it. I mean, it seems to function, but I don't, I don't know how well, operative it is, but what our listeners don't know is you and I did some shooting at, at, a, at a local waterfall yesterday and having worked in a camera store at the time that that was mm-hmm. made, I was pretty familiar with it. I mean, I used to sell them and I think your diagnosis is accurate. The meter's toast or something. Cir- something the in the circuit electronics board in there is not happy. Right. So uh, it remains to be seen if I can get it conditioned up to the point where it's function, where it's usable. And then I was going through stuff and shutter I, speeds appear to work. Yeah, that well, and apertures seem to work. And so these Olympus <laughs> cameras, they're interesting. They're very small. I mean, it's like, my goodness, this thing is, is small. It's about the same size as my Fuji X-T1. It's not a very large camera. And the the design was interesting. Both the aperture and shutter speed were controlled on the lens via control rings. So there was no shutter speed or exposure control on the body of this camera whatsoever. It just had metering. Um, And the OM4 was interesting. I remember when my grandmother got it, she was very excited. It had multi-spot metering, which was kind Mm -hmm. of interesting. It also had the ability to designate a highlight. So it was a spot meter, but it would automatically apply EV compensation to either a highlight region or a shadow region. So, you know, there was things, it it had some interesting little tricks for a camera at the time, you know, considering it was a a manual focus camera, you know, so we're in that time where autofocus really hasn't come out yet in any meaningful way. This is the early eighties. And so meters were in or undergoing the, the evolution. I mean, this was the same time when I think you mentioned Nikon brought out their first matrix meter, right? In the FA. FA, Yeah. And that was 1982 or three. Yeah. About the same time this OM4 came out. Mm -hmm. So we're just, so we're in this point where we're moving from things having a, a, a center weighted meter to having spot meters and other things like that, um, on board. And, and that was interesting. But I'm going to keep the camera, of course, because no, either one way or another, whether it's usable or not, it's a, you know, that's how I remember my grandmother. She always had a camera in her hand, for better or yeah. worse. Come here, we're taking your picture now. <laughs> <laughs> and from looking at it, she clearly used it. Had some nice brassing on it. You know, the, oh yeah, OM fours were black, and um, you know, clearly got used. No doubt about that. Um, but I think it's going to work if you could use something as a meter source. And might you have found right. anything like that? So yeah, I'm digging through the closet, and I I find a a a uh, a leather case which is clearly a light meter. And I don't and me knowing nothing about these because keep in mind by the time that I was doing photography, cameras had light meters in them. Mm-hmm. So I'd never been in a situation where I needed to do anything with a light meter and I open it up I'm like well it's pretty good shape it looks okay I didn't know what it was but I'm going to bring it back just because a gut feeling just said it looks decent <laughs> you know it looks like a decent thing and sure enough it turned out to be a Gaussian Lunapro SBC light meter and it's fully functional this is one of the better light meters of the of the time 
Uh, and coincidentally, I have one. <laughs> yeah. So, so I've got it and it, it, it's nice because it has not only a reflective option, but it has the little dome that you can slide over and do incident, uh, you know, incident uh, metering. And then it occurred to me, my grandmother volunteered for decades doing photography of artifacts at a Jewish museum in Los Angeles called the Skirball Museum. And she would photograph their stuff for them. And in that scenario, when you're taking pictures of, you know, objects and, and you know, whether it was, you know, religious artifacts or objects, things from wherever, um, plates and spoons or whatever it might have been, she was under studio lighting conditions and having an ambient meter, an incident meter would have made a lot of sense because I never saw her using this meter in, in, Right. regular casual photography um you know so that that was a, an interesting little find and i put a new battery in it and powered it right up so that's that's fun so it gives me an option um if i can get this other camera to 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 work don't don't get me going on the cost of film and processing these days oh my gosh i <laughs> you know we're, we're thinking about doing it you know provided that can get the light seals and the camera fixed because they had clearly decomposed um, I think it'll work, you know, if, you know, if you're just setting shutter speeds manually and stuff and with the light meter, it's super easy, but it was just funny for me in the process of us talking about it. I pulled out some of my old stuff, including the Luna Pro and was just reminded of how utterly simple and kind of charming it was to shoot that way. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I would trade it for what we have today there's no way i would um, because of what you can do in terms of image quality and flexibility but my gosh was it nice just nothing there to think about no customizable function buttons no subject recognition which are wonderful things but it's also wonderful to not have it so if we do that and i hope we're able to I expect it to be kind of fun. Yeah. Um, Super retro. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it's it's cool. And, and it's a good thing we have technology, you know, looking back at old photos, if you're going through them. I mean, if you've got old photos, non, non-digital ones, of course, um, you know, you run into all kinds of problems with how do you preserve those. And my grandmother had back in, based on the dates on the, on the slides, in 1986, she had taken a lot of the prints and had them shot on slides. So someone did copy stand mm -hmm. kind of work with a lot of old photos. And I'm talking about pictures of she and my grandfather from when my grandfather was a baby in you know, 1925, 26, mm -hmm. you know, like going way back, but also stuff from the forties and fifties and just things. And she had taken the, taken the time to get them put onto slide film. And then what I was able to do was take those. And I used that, um, that Nikon ES2 adapter that that we have. Uh, it's a Those slide. are really nice. Yeah, I got one when they finally came back in stock last year, and I haven't had too much opportunity to use it. I was able to get it to work with my um, Nikon um, Z9. It's, it's intended to be used with the D850, I think is what it was originally uh, designed for, with, with the F-mount stuff and a... And a like the 60 millimeter macro lens, I think mm -hmm. like what it's intended to yeah. be used for. Yeah. Um, what I ended up doing was by putting the 518 on, on the Z nine with a couple of extension tubes. I think I needed almost 50 millimeters of extension. I was able to shoot at um, 
full frame 45 megapixel and the image was just slightly smaller than the frame um alternatively i could have used less extension and shot in dx mode which frankly is enough resolution because one thing you learn about taking photos or scanning old slides is there's not a lot of detail there (laughs) so 45 megapixels of mush isn't necessarily any better um but the advantage of this over say maybe a slide scan is um you can shoot in raw and i put the camera uh you know and then i'm in raw and i can use a really flat um or, or almost linear uh camera profile so that I'm not adding any more contrast than necessary. And then in Lightroom, I can kind of boost things up. But one thing you do find, Kodachrome was worth its way. It's worth the price because boy, those things live forever. I have Kodachromes from 1969 and I know that's not really old as Kodachromes go, but they look fine cut in terms of color. Sure. You quickly discover that the lenses weren't all that great and things aren't all (laughs) that much in, in focus, but that had nothing to do with it. But you quickly become grateful that the photos weren't made with ectochrome, which in general has faded horribly by now. And there's some of those too. And they're there. I can see what the images are. That's fine, but they're pretty much pink. Um, yeah. Not much to really work with on those, but you know, it was kind of, it was kind of interesting. We found some stuff and I found some photos of my grandparents that I hadn't certainly hadn't seen before. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a good thing to do, but it's important to, you know, think back. And I think this is a good thing. Think back about who it was that really influenced you to get into photography. Because most people might look at Ansel Adams photos and think, wow, that's really great. And that's amazing. Mm-hmm. And there's no, and I'm not going to diminish that those people aren't an influence, but almost always there was someone in our family, an uncle, an older brother or a parent who had photography as kind of a hobby, whether it was an Instamatic or a darkroom, you know, or a Nikon. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't matter what it was. Um, and I know that's and, sort of the same for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. For me, I'll, I'll make it pretty simple and quick, but two people, um, really one was my dad because my dad, um, he wasn't super into photography. He enjoyed it. Mostly family photos and things like that. But the most important thing is he let me use his stuff. Yeah. And, and quite honestly, I sort of took it, took it over, <laughs> but, um, he let me use his stuff and it, you know, a combination of older stuff, one camera that was an old Kodak folding rangefinder thing that was made in Germany. Um, no light meter, no, no rangefinder. So you had to guess at the focus different distance. You had to guess at the exposure or use an external meter actually worked remarkably well piece of cake f8 and b there right rick yeah wasn't wasn't very hard you know um so that was important um the second thing is um one of my uncles who's technically not my uncle he was technically first cousin once removed he was my dad's cousin but we referred to him as an uncle and that was really the role he had Uh, in my life but he was a missionary dentist and did that work in kenya um, for a long period of times time they lived there multiple times over the years and one of the times he was he and his family were back from from kenya visiting us and i think i was probably 13 and i was my dad's camera had gone haywire and and was not fixable 
So I was without anything and I was thinking about what I might get. And strangely enough, based on the earlier discussion, I had been planning to get an Olympus OM-1. My uncle, though, had a Nicromat FTN and a variety of lenses uh, up to, I think, 300 millimeters. And so he was showing us some of his photos that he'd taken in Kenya, you know, wonderful wildlife photos and everything, which I thought were just so cool. And it was, it seemed so exotic and stuff like that. And I had a chance to use this stuff and almost instantly I flipped. I wasn't going to get an OM-1. I was going to get a Nicromat, which is what I ended up buying. And But it wasn't just, you know, being inspired to buy a brand of camera. That wouldn't be quite enough. It It just got me energized into photography yet again another jump start and it turned out to be kind of a big one but you know i absolutely wanted to be able to go to africa eventually mm -hmm. go on a safari do those kinds of things which fortunately i was able to do you know much later but it's not always the famous people yeah and you know it also reminds me of that that time when you know that when, when you're losing enthusiasm you know and I, and I think back to when i was you know younger and you know all i had was a nikon um that el2 which i still have mm -hmm. annual focus um but it has a meter thank you thank goodness but all i had was a 50 millimeter lens that was it that was the lens that came with now, i could sometimes borrow the telephoto from from my parents to do assignments for the yearbook and stuff back in the mm -hmm. mid 80s but the the experience and I, and I I've seen this with others and, and I think even my grandmother you know when you got a new lens that was a totally different focal length than what you've been used to the joy of like I'm gonna go play with this now and go mess around with stuff and then you had to wait two weeks to get your pictures back <laughs> but uh or whatever but you know just the idea of I got a wide angle lens I want to test this you know I want to try was this huge. it was a huge thing yeah I think we're very spoiled and a little bit jaded in some ways, but what you're saying makes complete sense to me. I got, I remember when I got my first accessory lens, which took me several years to get, cause I, you know, mm -hmm. as a teenager and didn't have a huge amount of money, but I got a Vivitar 135 2.8, which everyone in the world had at that mm -hmm. time. <laughs> it was like standard issue if you were doing photography then and, it wasn't a bad lens, but it was so exciting to be able to take mm -hmm. some different shots. No, and even when I was back in uh, graduate school, still shooting film, but I had gotten an autofocus camera. One of the first lenses that I was able to scrape up to afford was the uh, Sigma 10528 uh, macro. Mm -hmm. And you know, and this was great because now I always liked close-up photography. And you know, I should point out that you know my grandmother lived in California. I grew up in Florida. My mom. Uh, you know, continued to channel the creativity and she was the one with the dark room and we played around with the enlarger, but she had a lens that had like a 90 millimeter macro function. It, you know, you could do the close focusing on the mm -hmm. focus ring. And sure. I love going around and trying to, and in Florida, <laughs> there's all kinds of grasshoppers and bugs and whatnot. And you oh, yeah. try to take pictures of them. Um, that to me was, was really cool. So, you know, it's, it's, it's good to recognize the creative influences in our lives that aren't the famous well-known photographers that, that we, uh, 
all kind of know. Yeah. I think the famous photographers are really important in helping us get ideas for styles of shooting and, and, you know, the kinds of, of stuff. But when it comes to the sheer joy and creativity that that tends to be organically nurtured usually through someone who's closer to us yeah i think so too or, or even just in school if it's like a class that you took or something like that yeah that can be fun so um anyway i appreciate having the time to to reminisce a little bit about about my grandmother um and i enjoyed uh, hearing it and hope our listeners did too and you know one of the things to think about is you know we've talked about this before but how can you be that inspiration for someone young too? Mm -hmm. you know, Absolutely. look for those opportunities and realize that you may be having more of an impact than you think you are. Absolutely. I, I think that's, that's something we often lose sight of. And, uh, you know, photography just seems so easy and just so clicky, you know, just punch your phone and take a picture. And there, there needs to be more than that. There needs to be some, creative expression and i don't mean just i found a cool snapchat filter <laughs> you know it's just no you know or whatever those are fun but it's not the same yeah anyway right. um hopefully our listeners have uh enjoyed hearing a little little of this and if they've got stories to share with us you know where to find us facebook.com slash image doctors until next time happy shooting all right bye-bye <laughs>